You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 47, Doom Patrol. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to be back and talking about another show that might be off people's radar just from not subscribing to every last streaming service that's available out there. But there are some people that have picked up DC Universe and perhaps because of Titans, which was the first big property on that uh, service. But now we've got Doom Patrol And I really love this series of superheroes that are not necessarily conventional in any way. It is based on a DC Comics title, but I just feel like these characters have a unique flavor that makes it dark and funny at the same time. Well, and I know I've read this somewhere, so I'm certainly not going to pretend it's my description, but it's sort of like the island of misfit superheroes. (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. I like that description. And we've been talking a lot about Netflix shows over the last few episodes of Sci-Fi Fidelity. And so it becomes very important to only talk about the first couple of episodes, even if some of our listeners have binged the entire thing. But in this case, they can't do that. (laughs) We actually are pretty much on track. I think by the time this podcast comes out, there might be four or five episodes. We're only going to look at the first three in this case. I was originally going to do the first two like we've been doing, but the third episode is just so important to the story and definitely my favorite of the first three episodes. So if you haven't seen Doom Patrol yet, we're going to have a very short spoiler free section to give you a little teaser of what the show is all about. And you can decide if you want to check it out. And then the spoiler zone is going to come fairly quickly with this one because we're going to dive right in with the characters and what they experienced during the first three episodes. So there won't be any spoilers past the third episode if you've seen even farther than we have. But we're just going to go over the premise really quick and then uh, you can decide if you want to move on with the podcast or wait until you've seen the show yourself. Now, Dave, how far did you get? And you're viewing. Well, I've seen the first three. And, you know, we talked after I had seen the first two and I told you I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. And you told me right away, watch the third episode. Things will change. And while they did change, not considerably, but it just opened up a whole new avenue that we hadn't seen yet. And I'm I'm hooked. Yeah, it's really good. And it's funny because. There's a lot of things that some superhero shows would have definitely done that this show has not done by the third episode, including letting the characters come into their powers. <laughs> They're taking a long time with that. So the pacing is very deliberate. But at the same time, there's so many good uh, bits of humor in this. And in fact, DC Universe gave viewers a glimpse of the Doom Patrol already in a standalone episode of Titans. And I guess we call that a backdoor pilot these days. And there was a dinner scene, which was lots of fun. With, uh, you know, obviously Robot Man couldn't really eat. He really wanted to know what the food tasted like because he was very jealous of those around him. And so it just basically was played for full comedic effect. Although I hear that Calder came off a bit darker then and is now played by Timothy Dalton in this series with a little bit more lighter touch. But what's really great about this series that is worth tuning in all by itself is the fact that the series begins with an origin story for Mr. Nobody, who is voiced by none other than 
Firefly's Alan Tudyk. And <laughs> he does a brilliant job at being our proxy because his narration is very meta. And see, I, I knew Wash wasn't dead, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, you mentioned his narration and ordinarily, I, I think both of us agree here. We're not huge fans of voiceovers, but, <laughs> yeah. but number one, it's freaking Alan Tudyk. And number two, it's got that retro feel to it, which the whole show sort of has, which yeah, it does. It's just so much fun and it just works. Right. And he, you know, makes reference to the show. So he's basically saying, oh, no, not another superhero show. You know, it actually is a show that references itself in several of the episodes that we're talking about tonight. But let's just go over the different characters and the premise of the show. Like I said, the series begins with the origin story of the villain, Mr. Nobody. His real name is Eric Morden. And he went to Paraguay in 1948 and paid an ex-Nazi for enhancements. And he came out of the enhancement machine with unknown powers at this particular juncture. And then the other main character, you could argue, is Cliff Steele, also known as Robot Man. And Cliff Steele is voiced by Brendan Fraser. I assume Brendan Fraser just kind of has to mostly show up to do the voiceover because there's another actor in there, Riley Shanahan (laughs) playing robot man. But Cliff Steele is a race car driver in 1988. And it's interesting. A lot of these characters come from different time periods and Cliff meets a bad end. And we don't really know exactly how he ends up inside of a robot body. And he's not sure what has happened to him. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. The other characters include Rita Farr, who is a former 1950s Hollywood starlet played by April Bowlby. She's a vain elastic girl who became a rubbery blob like being after an underwater encounter during a movie shoot in the 1950s. And clearly she's a diva. And so this disfigurement that she gets is very fitting. She can't control her turning into a blob. Usually it's on her face or her leg that she's unable to control the shape. But the bonus is she doesn't seem to age very much <laughs> as a result of that. And likewise, Larry Trainer, played by Matt Bomer, is Negative Man. Negative Man is a 1960s hotshot pilot who encountered a being of pure energy while at high altitude, which kept him alive enough that even though he crashed into the ground because of this surprising encounter, he's still alive, even though he's extremely disfigured because the energy being was only able to do so much. So as a result, he's wrapped in invisible man style bandages right now. You know, at this point, you mentioned a few minutes ago that they choose to not go into areas that most superhero shows go. And and one that strikes me immediately, generally, our superheroes are attractive individuals, both male and female. (laughs) And yet we don't see robot man because he's encased in this metal interior negative man as you said he's all bandaged up rita while she is attractive as soon as she's under stress she becomes as you said this this rubbery blob like being so there's this sense that these are clearly not your father's superheroes (laughs) exactly And in fact, that's a good segue into the next character to mention, Crazy Jane, one of my favorites. 
played by Diane Guerrero. She's a young woman who might appear normal. She doesn't have any disfigurements or wrappings or entrapments, but she does have 64 personalities inside of her. But the superhero part of it is that each one of those personalities has a separate power that we get to discover over the course of the first three episodes. And one character who comes in a little bit later is Cyborg, who's played by Joy, Joy of and Wade. He's kind of half man, half machine. His real name is Vic Stone, who's on his way to joining the Justice League, which people may recognize Cyborg from that title. But for now, he's just a teenager with Star Labs enhancements because his father works for the Detroit branch of Star Labs. So that's the characters we're dealing with. That's the super team we're dealing with, which at first is not very super. In fact, they're mostly very cynical individuals. And so you you wonder, what are they going to do with this? So we're going to dive here in the spoiler zone. So I'm going to go ahead and hit the spoiler button here. And then we're going to dive in with some of the storyline. But check it out if you haven't already. And then come back to the podcast when you're past the first three episodes. You are now entering the spoiler zone. I just had to do a little uh, <laughs> stinger, audio stinger for that one. But the way that I'm going to break up this discussion, Dave, is to just to talk about a couple of the characters and their development and skip around a little bit in time, because I think it's important to note that some characters, even after the first three episodes, have only made incremental progress in their personal journeys. So we haven't learned a whole lot about them yet. And I, and I appreciate that that Doom Patrol is willing to take a very careful pace because especially with Rita, I keep thinking, wouldn't they have had her use an elastic girl type of power to stretch up to something that was not reachable or something like that? And they haven't done that within the first three episodes. So uh, did you like that as well? I think it was kind of cool that even Robot Man barely was able to control when he used his strength to save people. Well, well, right. It's she's learning her powers, so to speak. And as you said, they're not using what we might expect robot, man. We see the scene where he has to even learn how to walk up a step. Yeah, exactly. So it's very carefully paced and negative man also is, is trying to figure out how to control this energy that's inside him. And I feel like other superhero shows would have done that by now. And I like that they're taking their time with it, but it starts with Mr. Nobody. Like I said, he frames the backstory pops up in meta commentary throughout the series, setting up the initial threat for the team and seems very considerably powered. And so when Rita, Vic and Larry are inside the donkey, and if you've seen the end of episode one, you know, which donkey I'm talking about, he spends some time torturing them with visions of their pain. So you think, okay, what the heck is this power that Mr. Nobody has. It seems to be interdimensional. And I'm sure people who have read the comics already know what Mr. Nobody's power is, but I'm kind of puzzled by it in a good way. Well, well, right. And <laughs> just, they find themselves inside the donkey and you just move on. You know, it's like <laughs> as if that's something to be expected. Yep. The dimensional pocket inside a donkey's mouth. So the narration from Mr. Nobody is very humorous and, and self-referential. Like I mentioned, the mind is the limit seems to be some sort of mantra for him and is what he was saying when he originally got his powers in 1948. Again, he seems to be ageless like many of the characters who have gained their powers throughout the 20th century. 
But there is mention that he's from the Brotherhood of Evil, which was a supervillain team from the 1930s. So you have to wonder what was his supervillain power before he became Mr. Nobody and what pushed him to seek out a Nazi in the first place, because he seems to have some sort of history with Niles Calder. And I'm like, okay, we do learn that it has something to do with attempting to dispatch the Nazi who created nobody in the first place. But that makes me wonder is Calder kind of ageless as well. I mean, we see Niles Calder kind of sitting in a wheelchair most of the time, but you know, he seems to be middle-aged even in 2018. So how could he have been around (laughs) to foil the Nazis plan or try to anyway, back in the 1940s. So find that interesting to, to start out the series. And they get a lot of mileage out of the Fuchtopia. <laughs> yeah. Fuchs being the name of the Nazi. Yes. Yeah. That was definitely, definitely my favorite. So we'll, we'll talk about each person's journey into, into Fuchtopia that actually makes it there anyway. And Cliff is one of the people who makes it to Fuchtopia, but as robot man is being built, they spend the whole first episode doing this where you mentioned learning how to walk. He also has to relearn speech because all that's really inside there, I guess, is his brain, right? That's correct. The rest of it is just mechanically produced. Yep. But Rita shows Cliff what he's become in a mirror prematurely, according to Calder. But she says everybody deserves the truth. And I think that's interesting coming from Rita because it implies that she would want to know that she was disfigured <laughs> as she is without being lied to. But it begs the question, why did Calder go through the trouble of saving Cliff Steele's brain? He's just a race car driver. So does he have some kind of obligation? Does he have a superhero creation complex? And why Cliff in particular? He didn't have any predilection. In fact, he seemed like he wasn't a very nice guy. Well, I wonder if it was just a matter of convenience as part of his experimentation that yeah. this brain was available and and. You know, you, you mentioned him being a race car driver, and we see two distinct and separate ways that he dies. And we learn later which one appears to be real. But, but dying on the racetrack, is that his fantasy of how he went out? Well, I think it's just his memory hasn't fully developed because apparently he did have a crash on the racetrack that day. But. He survived because you get the sense that even though he's extremely unfaithful to his wife with the nanny, you know, I think what woke him up and got him to try and reconcile was his near death on the racetrack. But here in Robot Man's body, he thinks the crash was the cause of his death, but he didn't die on the track, actually rammed into a logging truck just as she and he and his wife were trying to reconcile and even had the daughter in the back seat. And What puzzles me is that Calder leads him to believe that both his wife and his daughter died in that horrible crash. Obviously, all that was left of Cliff was the brain, and the wife definitely died, but Clara is alive, and he doesn't want Cliff to seek her out, thinks it will just be painful for him, too much time has passed, and it could serve no purpose, but that becomes... Cliff's personal mission. In fact, he even finds Clara's phone number in his file in the basement in episode three and almost calls her, but backs out at the last minute. But the only thing I can see that he's gained in his time, many years in Doom Manor, as it's called, 
is his strength, the use of his strength, because he does stop it when Reed is on a rampage in, in Cloverton. And he is almost out of control with his power, ripping people in half during his time in Fugtopia. And I assume there's going to be some fallout from his uncontrolled display of strength. So definitely an interesting arc for that character. Yeah. And and for the lightness that the series has, it's pretty gruesome in parts. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, his unfaithfulness to his wife comes to some pretty graphic sex scenes as well in the first episode. So this is not the CW DC show, <laughs> nor is Titans from what I hear. Yeah. So they're able to get away with a lot more that way. But what's really puzzling to me is that the time frame that this all happens, it takes seven years for Cliff to heal. That makes sense. He dies in 1988. He finally awakens or, or comes into his own in 1995 And then after he has figured things out, it's 24 more years living in Doom Manor with Larry and Rita where Cliff builds a miniature racetrack. Is that all they did for 24 years? Larry has his garden inside the bus and it's not until crazy Jane shows up and disrupts everything that they do anything at all. So it just seems weird to me that here Rita and Larry, they seem to defy age, but Also, they seem to not really have any inclination to control their powers during that huge amount of time. Um, And it's only once this mission enters their lives that they do anything about it. So I feel like the 24 year time frame is almost a little bit too much for credibility. But. Oh, well, well, you know, and it's also the fact that we've got all these individuals that have no interest in interacting with the others. So that, you know, as you say, they build the slot car track, Rita knits, you know, Larry's got the garden. It's they're happy to just stay separate. And and perhaps it's the knowledge that there is somebody like me out there that helps them cope with each challenge they face. As you said, it, it, it takes crazy Jane's appearance and her 64 personalities to bring them all together and start what ends up being a family unit. Right. And, and cyborgs appearance, of course, cements it a little bit more as well, but it's, it's just interesting because I just can't figure out why Calder would do that. He doesn't even try and get them to go on any kind of personal journey. It's just like, he just wants them to be in his mansion and take care of them. So it's an interesting thing, but Jane does show up. She's got those personalities that are immediately compelling and she takes them on a field trip into town, which results in, Mr. Nobody showing up because they've drawn attention to themselves and Calder is swallowed up along with the entire town of Cloverton. So did Jane just take them into town because she heard it was Clara's birthday and she wanted Cliff to know that his daughter was actually still alive because uh, she doesn't really seem to feel much guilt about what happens to Cloverton and to Calder. And of course their main mission is going to be to try and get Calder back. But you know, Calder was trying to get them all to run and it was her that turned the bus around and got Larry and Rita to agree to go after the bus that got pulled into the vortex. Now, now we keep referring to him as Calder. They refer to him as the chief, the chief. Yes. (laughs) And and I I think that's a lot cooler, but it's also, again, it's, it's a bit more endearing. Yeah, no, totally. The chief, I'll I'll call him that from now on. Okay. But yeah, some of the, 
personalities of Jane that we got to see were really cool. We had Sylvia who has some kind of weird voice. Hammerhead is like a really abrasive, tough chick. There's the hangman's daughter who does a lot of painting and is quite morose. Uh, the one I really liked was Lucy Fugue, who seems to have some kind of electric powers. And we got to see Silvertongue more than once. Her words manifest into dagger-like implements that she can sort of kill and maim with. <laughs> so it's really cool learning about her because I think there's a lot of mystery surrounding how her personalities came to be. And she says that the underground is vast and the underground is her reference to this subway like maze of connections between her different personalities that come out at different times. So she does have a purpose though, beyond just causing chaos because she's the one that counsels Larry to stop fighting negative man. Negative man comes out at inconvenient times, including on their road trip where kind of just completely blows out the bus (laughs) motor. And it's because according to Jane, Larry is not respecting negative man's right to exist the way she respects her different personalities right to exist inside of her body. So when flit one of her personalities teleports them to Paraguay and they wonder, why didn't you do that before we've been on this road trip across the country? You know, she doesn't have any control over it. Flit decided she wanted to teleport them. So she did. So I I just love that aspect of Jane. She's willing to give up control. In fact, when she kills Fuchs, the Nazi who is in charge of Fuchtopia and is still doling out superpowers in the modern age, tells her this insignificant victory doesn't belong to you. Nothing in your life does. But to say that to Jane of all people, she thinks control is a weapon of fascists. So she doesn't really care if the victory doesn't belong to her. So I think the theme of control is an interesting one, not only for Jane and Larry, but also Cliff. Uh, After he ripped people apart, you have to wonder, is control going to be an issue for him as well? Right. And just the fact that they go into town against the chief's direction, which is to stay put while I'm gone, they all have to learn control. Yeah, I think that is certainly a theme that's going to work its way throughout the series. So let's go ahead and take a quick break at this point. And when we get back, we'll dig a little deeper into why Rita and Larry have been in hiding for so long and also take a closer look at Cyborg's motivations. Okay, and like I said earlier, I think with Rita, and we'll start with her, any other series would have had her controlling her elasticity by now, but we just mentioned control, so Rita is wrapped right up in that as well. But as soon as the chief disappears, she's the one that says, we're not heroes. And Larry likewise says upon seeing the disappearance of Cloverton, this is what the world looks like when we try to live in it. And they're not wrong, are they? (laughs) No, they're not. And and I love the fact that they don't see themselves as heroes because, of course, at this point, they're not. They see themselves as freaks. And that's understandable. Yeah, they are have pushed away a lot of people in their lives to begin with. Uh, And we'll get into Larry's story, of course, in in particular, but Rita doesn't seem like she really had a lot of closeness in her life anyway. And in fact, one of the first times we see her lose control and completely blob out is when she goes into town and, and she realizes that people 
who remember Rita Farr, because, of course, the waitress notices she looks a lot like that actress from the 50s. Uh, they think that she indulged in porn later in her career and that she was somehow still alive past when Rita receded from society. So, you know, she clearly still has self-image problems. And so that has carried through. And so I guess that does kind of explain why she would want her comfortable life at Doom Manor rather than trying to do anything heroic with her power that she probably doesn't even see as a power. Right. And that's what makes it so devastating what happens to her when she stresses out. Because on the one hand, her life has been about her looks as an actress. And while she's not been totally vain, she's, you know, kind of. All right. So she says it as a curse anyway. Larry is the one I don't get because Larry seems like he would have issued the ultimatum to negative man that he issues on their road trip long before this, you know. But it takes him that many years to finally just be fed up with it. It just seems a little weird. But obviously a big part of Larry's story is that he hid his homosexuality from his wife back when he was a test pilot. But turns out she did know all along. And in fact, during his recovery, the medical staff were killed by the radiation. And so when he's in seclusion, she speaks through this little intercom and tells him she's leaving with the kids and she wishes him the best. And even though Larry's lover stands by him, although he has to keep his macho persona going in front of the other guys, Larry sends him away, doesn't want him around to either die from the radiation that he's putting out or to see him so disfigured by the impact with the ground, even though negative man uh, kept him alive in, in this horrible mummy like state. And the fact that we really don't know what negative man is. Yeah. Is pretty cool. Right. Because he issues that ultimatum and it zaps the bus, but it also won't let him leave when he tries to get on a bus to take off on his own. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah. It's like, what's going on here? I, th I feel like the negative man has some kind of idea for Larry that it just can't communicate what it wants. And so they're going to have to come to some sort of understanding. And of course that has to happen in the context of the show, but I just think it's strange that it's taken them this long in the context of Larry's life. So in the Fuctopia episode, episode three, he does try to separate from negative man in the power chamber that gave Mr. Nobody his powers, but does not seem to have any luck once they defeat Fuchs and turn off the machine, he just kind of <laughs> walks out of the machine, doesn't say a word. He seems resigned to his fate at this point. So a lot of development for Larry, a lot of backstory for Larry, and can't wait to see where it goes moving forward because obviously Negative Man seems to me kind of a metaphor for the self that he hid away in his actual life, the negative man has, you know, <laughs> sort of a symbolic meaning in that way. But much more conventional superhero is Vic, who is the much more well-known uh, superhero cyborg, shows up in the Justice League comics. But here he's a young teenager, would you say, Dave? What age would you put him at? Um, Yeah, maybe a little bit older than, yeah, early 20s. But uh, we see in a flashback that he got in an argument with his mother about some petty school issue and his tantrum when he just kind of swept all the scientific equipment off the desk, it caused an explosion that killed her and disfigured him. 
And so his father rebuilt him with Star Labs' help and is prepping him for the Justice League with these cybernetic implants that he has that give him a interface with a supercomputer. It gives him a lot more strength. He's got the laser eye that we haven't really seen him use yet and a lot of other stuff, but he doesn't really want to follow his father's mission for him. And we get the sense of unease from the very start when instead of doing the crimes or fighting the crimes that his father wants to build his resume, as it were, for the Justice League, he hones in on an FBI report of the missing town that happened near Niles Calder. And so he wants to do his own thing separate from his dad. And you can see throughout the first three episodes that Vic's desire to prove himself is his prime motivation. But how much of it is programmed into him is what I think is the real interesting question because he speaks about his mantra to Mr. Nobody when Mr. Nobody has him trapped in that donkey dimension, (laughs) if you, if you will. And it's the exact same wording that his father uses with him later about wanting to, to honor his mother's memory. And so we get the sense that the mechanical bits of him aren't just enhancements, electronic enhancements. It's also maybe a little bit of computer programming for his personality, for his mission and controls him somewhat. So there again is control. Right. And the father's motivation is still a bit fuzzy. Is it all about joining the justice league? Is this the father living vicariously through his superhero son? Uh, Of course, the connection with star labs is very cool, but why does he insist that Vic follow this path? Right. And in fact, when he decides to search for Niles Calder, that becomes Vic's mission. His father won't let him use Star Labs resources at first. And that's why they end up on the road trip in the bus all the way to Paraguay. And I think they're leaving from Ohio is where Cloverton is. So, you know, that's quite a quite a hike. But then at the same time, the father does have second thoughts and send the company jet after him to retrieve them from Paraguay. So interesting developments on the family front there. And so Vic's got some development to do, but I do like that as we're having this podcast discussion, I'm realizing that that control theme does extend beyond just Jane and Larry. So kind of cool, but I have to mention to end up our discussion, how much I loved Fuctopia. The first episode uh, was a bit of a mess. I actually had a little bit of trepidation when I watched the pilot and we were talking about discussing this on the podcast. I'm like, eh, I don't know that I love the pilot very much, but by episode three, I was totally hooked. And the one piece of it that I thought was kind of fun and comedic in its own way was the man that was at the bus stop. His name was Steve, an Asian guy who was so excited to go to Fuctopia. He, he wanted to save his money to get the Morden treatment but had only enough money to get magnetic feet. So I was like, right. just the idea of that is is really cool. Shopping for superpowers. Yeah. And, and certainly the sophomoric humor associated with Fooktopia is pretty priceless. And most of it centers around Cliff. <laughs> That's true too. And also just the people who inhabit Fooktopia who are just extensions of Fuke's mind. So he's kind of like a puppet master of sorts. And whenever they mention, you know, Jane offers up some sampling of her blood in exchange for the use of their machine and the 
inhabitants of Fuktopia just kind of look off into the horizon and it's basically Fuchs communicating with his minions in a sense. So, but Steve ends up coming out of the machine after the defeat of Fuchs and he's been in the machine way too long. (laughs) And he comes out with like a dinosaur on his shoulder and a, a rocky leg and a tree limb like leg. And apparently this is an actual character from DC comics called animal vegetable mineral man. (laughs) And it was just a nod to those who would be familiar with this character. And in fact, showrunner Jeremy Carver specifically teased that we're going to see other obscure DC characters such as beard hunter. (laughs) Don't ask me what that is. Celsius lodestone and Danny the street, which is a character who's apparently literally a sentient piece of geography who has the ability to place himself anywhere at will. So this first appearance of animal vegetable and mineral man is apparently a sign of insane things to come. And that really sets the tone, which is why I wanted to end with that particular detail, because it seems to me that there's a lot of unexpected twists the same way that the umbrella Academy had things we couldn't possibly have predicted, especially in our podcast discussion earlier. And Doom Patrol is headed in that same direction. <laughs> uh, I think we'll find Beard Hunter at a ZZ Top <laughs> concert, you think? <laughs> okay. Well, if any of those oddball characters get them any closer to rescuing the chief, then I will be happy. <laughs> but check it out on DC Universe if you're inclined to <laughs> go in for that subscription service. It's got, I believe, 10 episodes to come in total. Okay, cool. All right. Well, what do we have next, Mike? Well, next we have our interview with an actor who just got a very character-centric episode on The Magicians on Sci-Fi. And we've had a few discussions of The Magicians, plus our interview with Sarah Gamble, the showrunner of that show. But Brittany Curran plays Fenn on The Magicians, and it just so happens that Recently, a couple of weeks ago, I believe she had a character centric episode. And so we have a lot of questions we want to ask about the development of her character, but also how she got to this role in the magicians, especially since she was not the original Fen in season two, I believe she took over for another character, another actor rather. So that's what's coming next. Our chat with Brittany Curran fans of the magicians will not want to miss that one. But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 